Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Anthony Cooper is the author of six books exploring stories about Australian airmen of World War II. They include HMAS Bataan 1952, Darwin Spitfires, Kokoda Airstrikes, Paddy Finnecane and the Legend of the Kenley Wing, and Subhunters. Today I'm joined by Anthony Cooper to talk about his new book, Dispatch from Berlin 1943. Anthony Cooper, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. I'm glad to be here. Dispatch from Berlin, 1943, is all about a, a horrendous bombing raid on uh, Germany. But I want you to tell me what the scenario in Europe was at the time. What was the state of the war? So by 1943, Germany was the sole Axis combatant, Italy having surrendered. And the war was tipping against Germany on all fronts, in the Mediterranean, on the Eastern Front, also the Battle of the Atlantic. So 1943 is the tipping point year for Hitler's war. The writing's very much on the wall at that point. It's also the tipping point in the air war because the Americans have come in with their big bomber force to raid um, German targets during the day. Okay, so it just doesn't prove to be particularly successful in 1943, but it will be in 1944. So it's a, in a state of flux uh, in, in 1943. But uh, as far as the RAF is concerned, it's the year when they're really starting to create the force or they've amassed the force of bombers with the right equipment, the right bombs, right techniques in order to be able to do severe damage to German city targets in a way that they simply hadn't been able to do before. And so Air Marshal uh, Arthur Harris, uh, Bomber Harris, he decides that he's got the capability by the end of 1943 to have a big offensive to destroy Berlin uh, over a period of some weeks. He, if he just keeps on sending the bombers back, he knows it's a very big city. It's going to take a lot of raids to completely destroy it. But he's confident he's got the men, the machines, the techniques to do it. And so he actually intends to knock Germany out of the war, cause the complete collapse of the Third Reich by bombing alone so that D-Day doesn't have to happen and so that the Russians don't have to retake Germany militarily. It's an incredibly ambitious idea. But that's what's happening in the bomber war. And that's what's being trumpeted on the um, front pages of newspapers. And so my story about these journalists who go fly on this raid in December 1943, it's a story of the Air Ministry wanting to get the civilian population on side with this incredibly ambitious aspiration to KO Germany. On this particular mission, something in excess of 400 bombers were dispatched to fly over German airspace and into Berlin. These days, we would undertake some kind of risk assessment of this what were the risks based on the evidence from previous raids and had they been thoroughly considered? Yes, they definitely had been. So they certainly were able to crunch the numbers in the Bomber Command uh, headquarters system. They knew that if they went to Berlin, that they would lose 5% of the bombers per raid, maybe 10%. And they knew that as the Berlin offensive continued, that the loss rate would increase. So if they started with a loss rate of 5%, they knew by the end of the campaign that the loss rate would be trending upwards towards 10%. So that's losing 10% of the bombers that take off on each raid. 
So the raid on the 2nd of December is a good example. 400 bombers take off, 40 get shot down, 10%. The Bomber Command knew this. They were no illusions whatsoever. They were prepared to pay this price. And um, if you think of the total number of fatalities suffered by Bomber Command during the war, 55,000. So this is a brutal campaign which could easily be likened to over-the-top offensives at the Somme, etc. in the First World War. There's a lot in common. Obama Harris has got a lot in common with Field Marshal Haig. Let's talk about the correspondence that was sent along with these bombers. Five correspondents. Courageous or foolhardy? What's your opinion? Well, certainly they were risk takers. There were a lot of reasons why they would go. And we know that to, to this day that there's a certain type of journalist who will take these dangerous postings to war zones and civil wars and all sorts of unpleasant experiences. So um, we know that there is a certain type of journalist who will do this and always has done this. But for these guys, they had incentives. They were ambitious. Each of them in their own way wanted to make their mark. They wanted to be on the front page. They wanted to have their byline on, on the front page. They wanted to be a known name within the sort of newspaper constellation. Most of these correspondents were actually very senior journalists and already very well known in the media world. That shows um, the extent of their ambition, but there's also a kind of moral authenticity thing. And this has been documented by a number of people, including, interestingly, by Walter Cronkite, the famous um, American journalist who also went on raids. And um, it's explained in terms of almost like a survivor's guilt sort of syndrome. So the thinking goes that they there they are reporting day after day, all these stories about soldiers and airmen, et cetera, who are risking their lives, and many of them are paying the ultimate sacrifice. From the perspective of the journalist, they get this creeping sense of guilt that they're reporting on it, but they're not actually doing it. And just bear in mind that journalism was a war correspondence. They had a reserved occupation, so they were not subject to the draft, and they were keenly aware of it. So they knew that their college mates had been drafted and were serving in the US Army or the US Army Air Forces. This is this is in Morrow's case and Walter Cronkite's case. And so they're, they're, they've got friends that they meet in England who were serving in one of the fighting services. And so they feel that in order to be authentic, they've got to take some risk themselves. Otherwise, they're just a phony. And so there's this powerful sort of internally driven search for moral validation to themselves. They're trying to prove to themselves that they also are prepared to take the risk and to stand alongside the frontline fighters, something like that. It's a very strong motivation for these guys. Talk about the morality of uh, this mission a little bit later, but let's get to the individuals that we're talking about. I want to start with the Australians. Two of the journalists or war correspondents contacted by the British Air Ministry were what we call veteran Australian war correspondents. Why were Australian media organisations targeted and invited to this mission? Well, one of the important constituencies for the British, remember, so this is a this is a PR job by the Air Ministry in order to get the people at the home front on side with the bombing campaign. And it's not just the constituencies in Britain that they're worried about. They want the entire globe. Remember, Britain is running a global war and they have global allies and friends. They're drawing upon the resources of the whole globe. Britain is in no way alone. It's created all these networks of information and of resource sharing 
to support their war. And so they need to get the message right out across the world, and, and certainly within the Commonwealth, the entire Commonwealth. Because remember, the Commonwealth countries, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, are providing a hell of a lot of airmen to the bomber war, and they're, they're suffering very great casualties. If you check the, the casualties of the Royal Australian Air Force, the majority were suffered in bomber command. That's where our airmen died. And the British know that the Commonwealth countries need to be very much kept on side in this. And so by providing two of the slots to Australian media organisations, the Sydney Morning Herald and the Sydney Sun, they know that their syndicated stories are going to go out through, throughout the entire Commonwealth. And so the story is going to reach not just within Britain, but it's going to go out globally. Another reason is that Alf King, one of the two Australian correspondents, had been complaining to the Air Ministry that the Australian media organisations were being excluded from all the best stories, that the best stories were going to the British and the American media organisations. And he actually ran this campaign in the newspaper. He was quite bolshy about it. He was making all these accusations about British prejudice against Australians, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's uh, there's no document proving it, but it seems as though the Air Ministry thought to itself, okay, we better shut this bloke up. We better make sure that we've definitely got some Australians included. And so they include two of them. The two men we're talking about, Alf King and Norm Stockton, actually pulled rank in order to take on this assignment. Now, that's an extraordinary step to take. Yeah, so does Ed Murrow, the American. So, yeah, they're all senior men. They would have had a press office full of um, up-and-coming uh, young press reporters, if you want to be crude about it, men who are more expendable than they were, but they choose to go themselves. It could be out of a sense of sort of paternalism. So they know it's really risky. They've, they've, they can do the math and they know that it's 5 or 10% chance of not coming back. So they're saying, I'll go. But it could just be pure ambition as well. The two Americans that went, Ed Murrow, he was alleged in the field, and Lowell Bennett, an interesting quote there, with me went the irresistible premonition it was going to be a one-way ride. With that in mind, it's a suicide mission. Lowell Bennett, yes, he had this premonition, and so did the Norwegian, Nordahl Grieg. So Nordahl Grieg told his wife that he wasn't going to come back, and he left his personal effects with her because he didn't want the Germans to be able to identify his body. So there's two of the five who had a premonition of their own death. There's no indication that the other three did, of course, but the other three knew that they were dicing for their lives. In the case of Lowell Bennett, he was an extraordinary young man. Um, he was the youngest of them, at only 22, if I remember that right. An incredibly confident young fellow. He was incredibly ambitious, and he seemed to have had the sense of invulnerability. So even though he knew it was going to be a one-way trip in this um, sort of supernatural or premonitional sort of a way, he was convinced he was going to survive the trip. And he wrote a letter to his wife before taking off in which he says, when you hear that I haven't come back, don't worry, I'm going to be alive and well on the ground in Germany and I'm going to be writing a report about what it's like inside Germany. I mean, the hubris of this is quite astonishing. But he was young, he was bulletproof in his own mind and, um, and therefore he's prepared to take the risk. It's hard to ignore the prescience of that comment because what happened to Lowell Bennett was a very unusual occurrence, I suppose. A very unusual. Uh, it's a book in itself, I think, um, the story of what happened to him after he was shot down. He was captured, subject to interrogation, in the Luftwaffe's um, holding camp outside Frankfurt am Main. Whilst he was there, the, his interrogation officer 
obviously realized that he, he had an American on his hand, not an airman, but a war correspondent. And he contacted his superiors in Berlin. And they cooked up this plot. It was quite ludicrous, really, but it was cooked up within the foreign office in, in Berlin, obviously in cahoots with the Luftwaffe. And the idea was that they were going to take Bennett on this tour inside bombed-out Germany, a guided tour, treating him as a special guest, so he wouldn't be in the camp, he'd be out in amongst German civilians and so on. And they were going to turn his mind towards being pro-Nazi. This is what they literally thought. They thought that he was a sympathetic character. He was a nice chap in their mind. He clearly was sympathising with the sufferings of the German civilians. They could see that. And they thought they'd capitalise on that sort of human feeling that they could see that this guy had. And they were going to turn him to be an advocate for or a defender of the Third Reich and then release him back to the United States. And in their bizarre minds, he was going to go back to the United States and write all these pro-German articles in the American press. And then he was going to crack the American public's commitment to the war so that the Americans will pull out a D-Day before it happened. That's really the ludicrousness of this plot that they conceived. And it shows you something about the sort of childish geopolitical thinking of Nazis. Their entire failure to read the room and to understand the way other people think. But that's really what they thought. It's beyond belief. Let's talk about the fifth member of this group. So we've had two Australians, two Americans, and one Norwegian, Nordal Grieg. Now, Nordal Grieg is something like a, a Norwegian folk hero, uh, a broadcaster, resistance movement inspirer, a poet <laughs> as well. Why was it important to involve Nordal Grieg in this mission? Well, he was an afterthought. Like, he wasn't in the original list of um, invitees, but he'd been hankering for this opportunity for quite some time. He also had this view that the only way that you could report authentically was to experience it. So, for example, he reported on the London Blitz, and the only way that he could report on the London Blitz is back in 1940-41, was by pretty well going to an area whilst the bombs are coming down above you and sort of standing somewhere underneath the bombs, <laughs> being able to report immediately on what it felt like for bombs to come down near you, and then to be there when the fire engines and the ambulance crews to be able to go with the fire engines and the ambulances to the bombed out buildings right in the moment. This is what this guy was like. So if he didn't report that immediately, he thought he was a phony. So again, he had this immoral authenticity thing going on in his mind. And so if the only way to report on the air war is to be in a plane and go on a raid. The Norwegian government in exile pulled a few strings and got his name added to the list. I want to turn back to the mission itself. As Air Marshal Harris said, it will cost us between 400 to 600 aircraft. It will cost Germany the war. Was that estimate accurate? Was that the true cost? And did it actually cost Germany the war, as Air Marshal Harrison said? Well, his, his estimate of the casualties was very much in the ballpark, um, but in no way did it cost Germany the war. So uh, you would have to say his claim or his promise. He's made that promise to Churchill because Churchill, he does support the bombing campaign, but on the other hand, he doesn't. 
he flip-flops a bit about it because he realises as time goes on that it's not actually working. Because remember, the RAF was promising to knock Germany out of the war back in 1941. And each year goes past and he's, you know, at Churchill, he's got lots of faults, but he's got a strongly rational part to his mind. And so he says, oh, you know, to himself, well, this isn't clearly isn't working. And so he's got to be jollied along a bit by Harris. And so Harris makes this promise to Churchill then it's going to knock Germany out of the war. Totally fails. He loses those bombers all right, loses all those aircrew all right, but he, in no way does he knock Germany out of the war. His ambition was that he was going to be able to bring the war to an end. Germany was going to collapse. Hitler was going to be overthrown. And there would be peace overtures made by some sort of provisional German government, like in the First World War. And the war would end in ni- early 1944 before D-Day. That's Harris's grand plan. None of it happens, does it? So as a matter of fact, they have to keep bombing Germany. The Americans have to come into the air war big time in the first half of 1944. The Americans have to destroy the Luftwaffe. The Russians have to barge their way through um, East Prussia and Poland to encircle ultimately Berlin itself. And of course, the Allies do need to land at D-Day and fight their bloody way across northern France and Belgium, the Netherlands, into Germany itself. And the Bomber Command in no way is able to shorten the war in, in anything like the promised way. So, no, hollow words, hollow words. He was proven grossly wrong. My final question to you is really about the morality of this mission and, and it's whether it's justifiable or not. So some 80 years later, it seems to us like madness bordering on the criminal. Was this raid on any grounds justifiable? morally or in terms of the collateral damage that might occur? Let's just suppose that Germany had been knocked out of the war, that the German whole German war economy had collapsed, say, in January 1944, that Hitler had been overthrown, that those peace overtures had been made and accepted, that Stalin had somehow rather accepted the terms and that the war had ended right there in January 1944, I think in the total scheme of things, it would be justified because most of the deaths happened after D-Day. Most destruction happened after D-Day. So there's more killed in action after January 1944 than before January 1944. Most of the bloodletting has still to happen in the Second World War. And the other thing is that most of the destruction of German cultural property churches, museums, grand buildings, artwork, all of that vandalistic destruction that happened through the bombing, most of that happens after this raid, after this campaign. So if the war had been brought to an end in January 1944, those cities in Germany would not have needed to have been rebuilt. Most of those great buildings would still be standing, the art, the statues, the frescoes, the bridges, the whole thing. So the destruction is still to come. So I'd say, yeah, if it actually was effective, then it saves a lot of destruction. It saves a lot of lives. Unfortunately, it wasn't. No. I do have one final question for you, and it's about the journalism. Does the inclusion of these journalists in, in these raids and the reports that uh, that followed, does this event have significance in journalistic terms? I would say less than you think, because like, think of Ed Murrow. He goes on to make his career not on the basis, like it, it's not as if he's making the central claim afterwards in his career. He's saying, 
um, you need to take me seriously as a serious journalist because I went on that raid. In no way. He, like all the rest of them, he just sort of skates over it, skates around it. His his career is built on his actual work, on his actual output, which is excellent because he goes on to be an innovator in the um, embryonic TV business in the United States. There's Mara. It seems to have had no effect on his career. Alf King goes on to become a um, a manager in, um, I think it's Reuters. He leaves journalism and becomes a media sort of manager. So he's, he's no longer gets his articles in the paper. Is he satisfied with that? He has a successful career as a senior newsman. In no way is he trading on having gone on this raid as a sort of make or break thing. Um, and Lowell Bennett, similarly. Lowell Bennett, he makes his name through writing books. So he writes a book on the basis of his experience on this raid. That's his second book. And he writes another one afterwards. And then he goes on to a career in the Foreign Service in the US State Department. So I would say that it's not a sort of career breakthrough move to do this raid. So um, lucky they survived. Um, but, but you know, I don't think there's a massive pay, payback uh, career-wise. No. It doesn't sound like a resounding victory for anybody involved. No. And I think it's particularly salutary to think about this in light of what's happening in the Ukraine, where you know a lot of the scenes that I include in my book, they must be scenes that are being played out in the, the last year or so. It's a sort of sobering thought, really, that there is some overlap, I guess, between the experience of the Ukrainian civilians and um, these German civilians back in the day. Yeah, it's a universal. Yes, it's a very sombre note to finish on, but this is a fascinating story. And Anthony Cooper, thanks so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. I've been talking to Anthony Cooper about his latest book, Dispatch from Berlin, 1943. It's published by New South, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.